All right. So, uh, Romans chapter 16. And we are near the end. Uh, last week we started looking at verse uh, uh, 17 and uh, looked pretty much at verse 17 and 18. Today I would like to finish that section, verses 19 and 20, and then to look uh, briefly at the uh, greetings that Paul relays in verses 21, 22, and 23, Lord willing. So that's the, that's the plan. But he says in verse 17, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Quartus, the brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Okay. So, as I mentioned last week, we looked, uh, began looking in verse 17 uh, and uh, looked primarily at 17 and 18. What are some of the things you remember from last week's discussion? It seems a little odd that you would go through all these three, 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 and then go, oh yeah, but don't forget to watch out. Yeah, yeah, and then go back to greetings again. Yeah, so uh, so it does uh, initially seem a little out of place that he inserts this uh, this admonition in verses 17 through 20 about false teachers, etc., right in the middle of his greetings. But we, I gave an explanation for that. Does anybody remember what I said was possibly an explanation for why things happen that way? Why did it just pop in his mind? Because he's thinking of all these people he cares about and he wants them to be on guard and protected. Yeah. When you're thinking about people... You start thinking, you start worrying about them. <laughs> exactly, yeah, precisely. Yeah. 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 Good. Great. Yeah. Super. Great. Okay. The thing that I really noticed was when you brought up hindrances, that they were really scandals. And I had never thought, well, I had thought, but I hadn't really put it in the context that he says contrary to the teachings because Christ is a scandal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so it's anything contrary to the teachings of Christ
We addressed briefly uh, also the question of whether or not there was a specific problem in Rome that Paul was addressing here. Do you remember what we said about that? The answer is no. We don't remember. (laughs) It it doesn't seem like... We don't see any indication of any... uh, particular problem in Rome that would prompt him to say this. And in fact, in the verse, one of the verses we'll look at today, it seems quite the opposite. That he's saying, you don't, I don't notice this problem here yet, but I am warning you ahead of time that this could be a problem. In fact, uh, uh, the fact is, of course, that this problem of false teachers of of people coming in and disrupting the unity of the church and causing people to stumble uh, from their walk with Christ is a universal problem in all churches at some point in time. It will happen. And uh, so Paul, uh, uh, Paul is not amiss in warning the Romans to be on watch uh, there, even though there doesn't seem to be a problem at this particular moment. Anything else from last week? Okay. Yeah. 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 These people are not safe people to be around. Uh, they are destructive, and the admonition of the church is just don't have anything to do with them. Okay. Uh, as Gary says, it, uh, on the surface, it doesn't seem very nice. But what is at stake here? is people's walk with Christ and the testimony of the church. And uh, so it's a very important issue. And this is, this is very clearly different than what he was talking about in chapter 14. And remember, as we were talking chapter 14 and, and part of chapter 15 where Paul is talking about, uh, about uh, uh, those who are strong in their conscience or faith as opposed to those who are weak in their conscience or faith talks about the differences of opinion that existed between those two groups of people and he's admonishing them to accept one another, to receive one another, to bring the others in, to include the others into your love feast, into your uh, communion services and into your fellowship. Uh, so, he, so in chapter 14, he's talking about these differences of opinion that exist within the church and he's encouraging us to love and embrace and accept one another. But here in chapter 16, we have a completely different picture. So this illustrates the principle that we talked about in chapter 14, that there are differences of opinion within the church over what we would call non-essentials. As I said then, it's not that they're not important. It's that they're not essential. And on those areas, we are admonished to accept one another, embrace one another, even though we have differences about those things. But there are some things which are essential some things which are crucial. And on those issues, Paul says, this is, some, this is a hill to die on, folks. This is a place where we draw a line and we say, if you're going to teach that, if you're going to promote that kind of idea within the body of Christ or that kind of conduct within the body of Christ, then we can have nothing to do with you. So we see this clear uh, line of distinction between the essentials and the non-essentials and how we deal with that in the church. Okay. Uh, 
Also, last week I mentioned uh, he uses two words there. He talks uh, about those who cause first he says dissensions and then he talks about those uh, and he says who cause dissensions and hindrances. And I talked about the different emphasis of those two words. Do you remember what we said about that? The word dissension seems to emphasize one thing. The word hindrances seems to emphasize something else. When you think of dissension, what does that bring to your mind? Disagreement. Disagreement among friends or among the people in the group. Okay. So the idea of them causing dissensions, the focus seems to be on the impact that they have on the group, on the corporate body, on the church. Okay. So it's that within the corporate body, they are causing divisions. They're causing sectarian spirit and sectarian activity, that sort of thing. Whereas the word hindrance, and as uh, Debbie pointed out, um, uh, that comes from the word scandal. It has the idea of to stumble or to cause to stumble. And uh, if the idea of Dissension seems to focus on the group or the corporate. What does this word scandal or hindrance seem to focus on? Yeah, yeah. It's more of a focus on the individual and the impact on individual lives. So there are two aspects in which we need to be conscious of the impact of these kind of people. One is that they have they have a an impact on the church of causing divisions and quarreling in the church between various groups within the church. But they also have the impact of causing individual people to stumble in their walk with Christ, to falter in their fellowship with God in one way or another. And we I used some, gave you some examples of that last week. So, uh, so those are some of the things we talked about last week. Uh, and uh, we also talked about how is it, what, what is it about these people that makes them effective in, um, in leading people astray? Uh, we referred to this a little bit, that uh, how is it that they manage to deceive us? Okay, they're smooth and flattering speech. So they have this smooth kind of flattery. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. They, they have this way of approaching. But what does he say it deceives? Their hearts, okay? And uh, it seems to me that the idea there is, uh, he doesn't say he deceives their minds, but he deceives their hearts. It's that they, by the way they operate, and we'll talk more about that as I said today about how they operate, but by the way they operate, they lower your defenses, okay? So they get you so... So you're feeling pretty good about them because they they uh, they're pretty smooth and they and they kind of flatter you. And so it kind of lowers your mental acuity, if you will, It lowers your mental defenses because these people are so nice. You know, how could they be? You know, how could there be anything sinister about them? And so you're not on the alert. OK. And that's why Paul says we need to keep our eye on these kind of people. So so they're. Deception really begins to infect the heart first, and then that, and then that has the impact of the result eventually of leading us astray in how we think 
uh, about uh, the things of God and the truth that's been handed down to us. Okay? So those are some of the things we talked about last week. These are things that, that I've been thinking a lot about lately. I was sharing with some recently that I've been, I've been thinking a lot uh, over the last several years, particularly the last four or five years or so. I've been thinking a lot about how do we ensure... Uh, not that we can as human beings, of course, but how do we ensure that the church 50 years from now is what it ought to be? Okay. How do we guarantee? And of course, like I said, we as human beings can't guarantee. And, and I am confident of what Jesus said, that the church is his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I do believe that the church will triumph and that there will always be at least a remnant of those who are faithful to Scripture. But what role can we play and what role does God expect us to play in building into the church today and safeguarding the church today in such a way that we can have some confidence that 50 years from now, when we're long gone, that the church is still going to be being faithful to the truths of Scripture and to the faith once for all handed down to the saints, as Jude says. And so that's one of the issues that Paul is addressing Paul is coming to the end of his life. Uh, and, and, and the question is, what can he do to ensure that the church goes on and remains faithful? And so those are some of the things that he is addressing. Peter tells us in Second Peter that there will be false teachers among us. Okay? This, is not a, this is not a maybe, as I already said. This, this isn't an if or perhaps. He says, just as there were false prophets among them, speaking about the Old Testament, he says, there will be false teachers among you, Second Peter chapter 2. And uh, it is interesting to me, just by sidelight there, that Peter seems to make a shift uh, with the idea of, this is, I'll throw this in at no extra charge. Uh, he, he makes a shift. He says, in the old times, there were false prophets. In the current situation, there will be false teachers. I think uh, the, uh, the, the point that I'm trying to make of that is, is that uh, I think sometimes we under, misunderstand a little bit the idea of what is a prophet. Uh, and we, use, we sometimes use the word today to refer to somebody as, as really prophetic or somebody as a, uh, this person is really a prophet. And usually what we mean by that when we use the term today is that they really have a very uh, perceptive message about what we need to hear. They're very perceptive. They have a lot of insight maybe about the, 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 the times that we live in and how we need to uh, live and what we need to believe in view of the times in which we live. And, and, uh, and that's okay to use the word that way. But I think when we encounter the word in Scripture, that invariably it appears to me from my study that the word prophet always refers to somebody who is speaking a revelation from God that they could not have gotten just from reading the scripture or whatever. So it's not talking about somebody who's just a particularly good teacher or preacher. It's talking about somebody who is speaking with a some special revelation from God that they would have gotten directly from God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit usually involves foretelling the future. I don't know of any case in the in the scriptures, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, where it tells us that somebody prophesied and then tells us what they said, that it does not involve foretelling the future, telling us what's going to happen in the future. So I, I think it's a little erroneous 
to use the word prophet uh, uh, in the scripture or look at the word prophet and think it's just somebody who's you know maybe particularly powerful or effective in preaching or teaching or or or, or with an unusual insight uh, uh, into uh, our situation today. So so Peter, when he warns us, he says there were false prophets back then who were claiming to get special messages from God. He says today in your churches you're going to have false teachers. So uh, so this is something we should expect. Now, going back a little bit to some of the things that we talked about last week, Paul tells us to be on the lookout for these people, to be, to be watching for these people. And Scripture gives us, at least as I can make out, Scripture gives us at least three specific tools or three specific flags that we should be looking for that are indicators that we're dealing with one of these kind of people, okay? Or some of these kind of people. So there are three uh, instruments or tools or flags that Scripture gives us that says, okay, this is somebody you need to shun. This is somebody you need to turn away from. Okay. So what would be, uh, what would be the first uh, most obvious sign that you have that there's somebody here you ought to turn away from? Okay, the content of what he says. That's the issue. Uh, here in this passage in Romans, uh, in verse 17, Paul is saying, he says, you, you want to watch out for these people who are call, causing hindrances, etc. Contrary to the teaching that you've received. It's counter. So we look at what somebody is saying. We, we, we carefully think about what they're saying. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, Moses is warning the people about false prophets. And, and he says, now, you, you may have a false prophet. You may have a prophet come along and he tells you something's going to happen and it happens. But the guy is trying to get you to worship other gods. What do you do? Because he's prophesied the future and it's happened. But he's trying to get you to worship other gods. And, and, and Moses says, what's happening there is God is testing you. God has allowed the thing that this person has said to come true in order to test you to see if you're, see if you're really faithful to God. So there are people in our midst and there are false teachers come into our midst and they may look very good on the outside, but it is really a test from God as to whether or not we're going to carefully think about what people say or if we're just going to be swept away by their outward disposition. You're going to say something, Charles? If you already know the answer to that, what's the purpose of it? Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So the question is, why is God testing us if he knows the answer to this? Oh, okay. He's testing us to reveal our hearts to us. Uh, so invariably, when it says God is testing us, for example, when the Scripture talks about us being tested like gold is refined, and the purpose is to refine us, to purify us, and to reveal to ourselves our, our sinfulness. Uh, it's interesting that I, I think that the, that's one of the ways that yeah. Great point. Yeah. 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 You have to know the content. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Yeah. So, uh, so that uh, uh, so Moses warns us about these false prophets who look pretty good, but they but they are leading us to other gods. Uh, and Paul in Galatians talks about those who are preaching another gospel. So they come in and they sound very good again. Uh, we'll talk more about their method and their manner and that sort of thing. But they are preaching another gospel. So, the first instrument that we have in detecting false teachers is this. It's our Bibles. It's the Scriptures. Okay, yes? We got a phone call from our daughter and she hasn't had a meeting with a couple of friends and Well, one way obviously is if we know these tools. Uh, if we if we are if we are sufficiently familiar with the the ways to identify these kind of people, we can share that with people. We can say, well, now look, look, Scripture gives us these three tools, these three ways of knowing whether or not somebody is such a teacher. Uh, so let's let's look at this person and let's see, do they line up with these uh, three instruments? And the first instrument, of course, as I pointed out, is the truth. Okay, the the uh, the truth of Scripture handed down to us, and and is what they teaching does uh, does it uh, coincide with uh, the faith that's been handed down to us with what we know to be true from Scripture? Does it uh, does it lead us away from God or does it lead us to God? Uh, does it actually represent a different gospel? And in this case, it it's you know it's the it's the the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity as opposed to the gospel of suffering and the gospel of sacrifice and the gospel of discipleship. Those are two entirely different gospels. I'm so, see how, how, I'm sure they have some explanation on whatever they'll miss it, but I'd be interested to know how they preach that doctrine when we have examples like Lazarus and the rich man well, and you'll notice that they preach that doctrine in America. They don't preach that doctrine in Africa or in China or in places like that where Christians really do suffer and where Christians really are impoverished. They don't get away with preaching that kind of stuff. But there was on that news yesterday that uh, half a million Christians were being run out of their homeland. They yeah. out the reach totally you know, we're gonna come back in and we're still here, we're gonna kill you. Yeah. yeah, I don't think Joel seemed to do real well in that environment. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I think the flattery, we think, think of flattery as personal, but it can, I guess, can be corporate in the sense that guys like that tell people what they want to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is kind of form of corporate flattery. Yeah, yeah, good point. They don't call, tell them the center of their call for dependence or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. It's also cruel because 
seems if you've been under that instruction, you believe it, and that's where the argument happens. It's like you start judging everybody, well, if you're not wealthy, then you're not, yeah. you know, you're not the will of God. Or whatever. I mean, that's just rude. Yeah. Well, and it's also, uh, we talked about this fact of hindering or causing people to stumble. Uh, ultimately, it does that when you tell somebody, well, if you've got enough faith, you'll be healed. If you've got enough faith, you'll be rich. And when that doesn't work out, what ends up happening is these people end up jettisoning their faith. Uh, and so it really is a cause of stumbling. Well, so the first tool is content. Uh, the second tool Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 7, when he tells us, he says, you'll know them by their fruit. So the second content is the fruit of the teaching or the fruit of their lives. You look at their teaching or you look at their lives and you ask yourselves, uh, is that the fruit we want to be producing within the body of Christ? Uh, and, and Jesus warns us that there are going to be these kind of false teachers who come in. And one way we, one way we detect whether or not the teaching is false is we look at the fruit. We look at what it produces. And, uh, and Paul, of course, is, uh, is hitting on that theme here when he talks about they cause dissensions and they cause scandal or cause stumbling within the body of Christ. So if I see somebody and they're, and they're carrying on uh, some kind of ministry or teaching or whatever, and the result I see of what they do is that within the context of the local church, it's causing division. It's causing people to break apart, to have hard feelings towards one another, to divide into separate groups and to point fingers at one another like we were just saying. When, when, that become, when that's an obvious result of what somebody's ministry is producing, we know they're a false teacher. Okay? Uh, what if their lives are just being lived with things in them that are totally against the Word of God? That also, yeah. I think of guys like from the Branch Davidian group. Yeah. And David Craig, he was doing things that the Bible clearly teaches Yes, wrong. yes. And that's why I say it's both their, the fruit uh, of their ministry in the lives of others as well as in their own life. What is their, what is their philosophy? What is their teaching? What kind of character is it producing in their own life? But I've known guys who were very... who, who if you looked at their personal lives, there was nothing really outstanding. It was glaringly wrong. It wasn't a situation of immorality or greed. But I just could see the result of their life was that they caused division in the church. They just caused... Havoc in the church, okay? And uh, so it can be both. It can be the fruit within the body itself or the fruit in other people's lives or it can be what does the fruit produce in their life? And that's a flag. Jesus tells us, you judge them by their fruit. So if, if, if there are not other things by which we can tell, if we look at the fruit and the fruit is bad, he says, listen, bad fruit does not come from a good tree, Jesus tells us. And good fruit does not come from a bad tree. So, so this is one of the ways we measure. Um, uh, in, yes, go ahead. You people aren't going to let me get done today, are you? <laughs> I'm really kind of surprised in one way about how many Christians I've talked to who 
whenever I bring up something like this, they say, oh, no, you're not supposed to judge. You can't judge because judge not blah, 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 blah. And yeah. I say, yes, we must yeah. judge and yeah. things like this. Yeah, absolutely. We have, and then people say, well, we're not called to be proof inspectors. We're so pleased with that. Yeah. Well, we have to know what the person's saying. We have to judge. Absolutely, that. yeah. And, and there are many that's real clear in Scripture, I think. And yeah. And I don't know how many churches teach that kind of message. You yeah. You judge, you yeah. love everybody, and yeah. everybody will be okay. Good well, point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. In Titus, oh, in... That scripture actually does not unless you're willing to be good. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, in Titus chapter 3... I'm going to get hold of this class yet today. <laughs> no, this is good. I, I like you people thinking about these things or interacting. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, Reject the factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. This is another case of judging somebody by their fruit, looking at the impact of their life. In uh, the King James, it says to reject a heretic. Uh, but the word heretic there usually you know, has this connotation of of some kind of really glaring false teaching in our minds. But the word there in the Greek is really uh, has the idea of faction. And the idea is somebody who's seeking a following. Okay, uh, So it's, it's somebody who kind of shows up in the church and they're trying to kind of draw people after them. They're trying to, they're trying to get people to kind of follow them. Okay, and, uh, and, and Paul says to reject a person like that because they are, he says sinning and they are self-condemned. And uh, so this is another case of judging someone by their by their fruits. Yes, Ron. Um, and, and, you know, he said in the scripture we read this morning that they were slaves to their own appetite. Yes. So you always want to look and try to figure out what it is they want. They want. Yeah, yeah. And if you can find that, then that tells you a lot. Yes, exactly. So this all relates to the issue of fruit. Now, there's a verse in James that's really been very thought-provoking to me uh, that deals with this issue. You'll remember in James chapter 3, James says in verse 18, he says, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by peacemakers, by those who make peace. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by peacemakers. Okay, well... Uh, one of the things that that uh, uh, troubles me about the idea of judging somebody by their fruit is in one sense, you're too late. Right? Okay. There's already been damage done. Okay. The question is, what can I do to avoid that damage before it happens? Okay. So, one of the ways, of course, is by knowing the content, the first tool that we talked about, okay? The second tool that we have is judging them by their fruit. But the third tool that we have is by the way they go about doing what they do. And what strikes me about that verse in James is, uh, you know, I'm not a farmer. Uh, so, if you brought, uh, maybe if you brought some... Uh, uh, some seed of one kind of a crop and poured it in this hand and seed from another kind of crop and you poured it in this hand. And if I looked at it, I might not be able to tell which was which, okay? Because I'm just looking at the seed. So I don't know if I'm looking at, uh, you know, if I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking at wheat or if I'm looking at uh, 
barley or, you know, what I'm looking at. I, I could probably tell if it was wheat or corn. <laughs> okay. But there's a lot of seeds, you know. That's why when you go to the garden store and you're going to plant your vegetable garden and they have all those seeds and they have them in little packets, right, and they have a pretty picture of the fruit on them, right? Because <laughs> you don't know by looking at the seeds what it is, right? Okay. Well, what James is telling us is that if there's seed being sown and we don't know for sure what kind of seed it is, we can tell what kind of seed it is, what kind of fruit it will produce by the way that it is sown. By the way the farmer sows the seed. The seed whose fruit is righteousness. So we have the seed here and I want to know what's the fruit going to be? What is this seed going to produce? The seed whose fruit is righteousness is what? It is sown in peace by a peacemaker. Okay? So, if I see a peacemaker, if I see somebody who, is, who has a reputation as a peacemaker, and that person is sowing the seed in peace, then I can have confidence that the fruit that's going to grow from that seed is righteousness. Well, of course, the corollary to that then is another flag for us, isn't it? That if I have somebody who's not a peacemaker, they're a troublemaker, wherever they go, you know, I was thinking yesterday, I was thinking about this, you know the old, the Peanuts cartoon, and you remember uh, Pigpen in the Peanuts cartoon? Remember how Schultz always draws him? You all looking at me like you have no clue what I'm talking about. Ron knows. What does Pigpen look like in the Phoenix comic strip? He's always got this cloud of dust around him. He's scuffling along, and, and Schultz always draws him with this cloud of dust around him, okay? Well, there are some people who are that way about division and conflict. Just wherever they go, there's this cloud of conflict around them. Yeah. Corollary to that, you might say that. Sometimes you can not be a peacemaker because you are standing in an essential doctrine. If you're defending the essential doctrine of a church that's one off, uh, and yes. you can look like you're not a peacemaker. Well, yes, that is, that is true, of course, uh, because you're standing for the truth and clearly... You know, maybe make sure you do one before you... Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, Jesus is an example in the temple. He doesn't look like a peacemaker in the temple. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw them back to the truth of Scripture. What Paul is doing here is he's writing to a church which is faithful to Scripture, as he makes very clear here in the context, which is faithful to the Scripture. And so in this context, somebody who is causing trouble would be obviously somebody who is a false teacher. Yeah, yeah. But that is a good point. Kind of like what Mason said. I was driving to a meeting yesterday Christians should be peacemakers, and yet at the same time, we don't go for false unity. 
Yes. So there's really no unity. Yes. Exactly. And and Paul's very clear about that. I mean, here is here it is a passage in which he's talking about false teachers, and he's talking about people who come in and mislead. Okay. So clearly, Paul is cognizant of the fact that there are those kind of people, and uh, and ultimately, then, uh, as we know through church history, you have entire churches that are misled, and it becomes necessary at some point either to separate yourself from that church. Okay. Uh, and to go join a church that is faithful to Scripture, or uh, or to stand, you know, if a church is still salvageable, to stand up and 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 speak. Uh, but that's really those. That is an issue. But what I want to stress today is that's not the issue we're dealing with. We're really kind of dealing with some of that issue back in chapter 14. What do you do when there are differences of opinion? If they're not, if they're not on essential issues. Uh, what do you do if there are doctrines on which there are central issues? Paul is very clear. You separate. You divide. You shun, he says. You turn away from. And that's clear throughout his teaching. But the emphasis of this passage is written to a church that is faithful to Scripture. Uh, a church where there are differences of opinion on the non-essential things, but that on the essential things they are faithful. He says... Uh, in uh, in verse uh, 19, he says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. So, we know this is a faithful church. So, the context of the passage that we're dealing with, while this other problem is a very real problem that you all are, are addressing, and, and, uh, and I agree with you there, uh, that's not the thrust of the passage we're talking about. The thrust of the passage we're talking about is what do you do when somebody is coming into a church that is faithful? And one of the characteristics of such a person is that they are not a peacemaker. Now, even if you have some a situation, I might say this, even if you have a situation where you have to speak up for the truth because the truth is being ignored or it's being twisted or whatever, and it's necessary for you to speak up, the passage in James says, the seed whose, truth, or the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by peacemakers. So it's not just it's not just that in this one instance they're sowing the seed in peace. This is the characteristic of their life. And there are some people who just think it's their job to go around correcting everybody and straightening everybody out till everybody's got the right doctrine, their doctrine. Okay? And so and I and I know Christian I know people who I know are believers. They love the Lord, but they're like this. Everywhere they go, there's this cloud of conflict around them because they think they've got to straighten everybody out. Okay. Now I feel bad about correcting. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, even with Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we have the example in the temple that doesn't look like a peacemaker. But we know the character of Christ's life is what? He was a peacemaker. So, if there are times when I have to stand up and draw the sword and draw blood, that's not the characteristic of my life. But my life is a peacemaker. Yeah. I was thinking about the potential conflict you brought up in our supposed to stand up for truth and supposed to be a peacemaker. I mean, you can do that with a peaceful attitude. I mean, you can yeah. do that in the context of trying to work out peace. Yeah. I was thinking, uh, you know, I had a meeting yesterday and I said something that was a title attorney's meeting. I don't know if you idiots could be title attorneys and try to discuss that. <laughs> uh, we were 
I was discussing new people getting into the business because the oil and gas is booming. They don't know what they're doing. You know, there's other attorneys that just think they can jump in and do it. And of course, some of their work is. And then, as we introduced ourselves later, there was a guy that had come from a different background. <laughs> 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 uh, so, at the break, though, I immediately sought this guy out uh-huh. and I introduced myself and talked to him yeah. and tried and you know tried to start a friendship. And I think that's well. But I mean, the idea is to was to. Smooth it over and yeah. tell him, and, and, and he had the right attitude. Yeah. You know, he said, That's why he's here. He's at yeah. a meeting. He said, yeah. I, 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 I want to learn. learn. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to just jump in and assume I know it. And I said, You're doing the right thing by yeah. doing this. This is where you ought to be. And yeah. then we hit it off and, yeah. and visited. So that, that's kind of the attitude I think of. In a church, the same way. You take a stand, but you also look for bridges while you're doing Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Actually, there's a. I've been. Uh, in some research I've been doing lately uh, and some studying I've been doing, uh, one of the things I've, I've uh, had the opportunity to do is uh, uh, watch uh, several debates uh, on, uh, on the Internet between uh, believers and atheists, uh, non-Christians. Uh, uh, for example, William Lane Craig in some of his debates uh, with uh, various uh, non-believers or atheists or skeptics or whatever. Uh, but one particular uh, guy that's really struck me, a guy I just learned about about a year ago, by a guy by the name of John Lennox. He's a he's an outstanding uh, Christian. Uh, he's a mathematician at Oxford, teaches at Oxford. Uh, so he's in the scientific community at Oxford where you have guys like uh, Richard Dawkins and people like that. Uh, and uh, so he's actually he's actually done a very public uh, debates with Richard Dawkins, who's the author of The God Delusion, very aggressive, one of what they call the new atheists, uh, who are very aggressive in their atheism, very anti-Christian, very anti-theist, etc., etc. And, uh, and uh, 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 Lennox is a guy, he's probably about my age, I would guess. Uh, he he's, uh, uh, actually comes from Northern Ireland. He was raised in Northern Ireland. Uh, tells you a little bit about the environment that he was raised in, but he's a tremendous brother in Christ. And, uh, and it's really fascinating to watch him. I've also been reading, this week I've been reading a book of his called uh, Gunning for God, where he confronts the new atheists and, and a number of their ideas and philosophies and that sort of thing. Uh, tremendous book, incidentally, uh, uh, if you like some answers for some of the questions that new atheists are raising. It's called uh, Gunning for God by John Lennox. Uh, but it's really... Uh, He's very, uh, you know, in, in his book, he's very, you know, he's very direct and, he, you know, he calls these guys for what they are, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really interesting watching him in a debate because here he is in this debate with these very antagonistic, very belligerent atheists. And he's just so easygoing and he's just so generous and so gracious with him. And it really comes across more in his debates than it does in his book. Uh, He's actually written several books, but uh, but uh, I I just I I feel rebuked every time I watch him because I think if Dawkins said that to me, I'd jump down his throat. (laughs) But he's so gracious in it. So it is this point that I think we can be a peacemaker. At least we, we can exhibit the qualities of a peacemaker, even in situations where we're having to confront real air and real. Uh, uh, real uh, 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 false teaching. So, um, 
so the, the point that I'm on now, though, is this, uh, this issue of, of uh, we, we can detect these people by their content, we can detect them by their fruit, but we can also detect them by the way they communicate. So if you've got a guy who's just, everywhere he goes, there's conflict, everywhere he goes, there's trouble, you can just about be assured that something in what he's saying is fishy, okay? Um, we also know uh, uh, from what Paul says that they oftentimes speak, uh, the contrast of that would be people who often speak with smooth and flattering speech. They're just they're flatter, right? I knew a guy, uh, a, a Christian, a leader, a Christian leader one time, actually, and uh, uh, in, a, in a local church situation, and and uh, he, he always kept praising me about stuff. You know, he said, oh, Rick, you're so... You know, and he was always doing this. And, uh, and sometimes I kind of wondered how he knew these things. I mean, I agreed with him. But, <laughs> but I wondered how he knew them, you know. Did he just really know this about me? Or was he just saying it? Okay. And uh, as the more I watched him, I saw he did this with other people too. And, uh, and so it's just, you know, other than, I, I, I didn't have any problem with the guy on anything particularly. But I finally went to him one time and, and I said, you know, I, I just sometimes I wonder if, if you're just flattering me, you know. Well, that really hurt his feelings. <laughs> because he really was, uh, at least as, as much as he knew, he was sincere and, and he, was, he was a little hurt that I would say that. Uh, or he, I don't know if he was hurt, but he certainly didn't agree with me. And uh, apparently of, of encouragement. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's not gonna, not gonna happen in this class, that's for sure. Uh, but, uh, but it's just that you know when somebody, somebody is always saying all this really great stuff about you, so eventually you kind of begin to wonder, you know, what's going on. Well, I don't think there was any in this particular case. I don't think there was anything untoward about this gentleman and and uh, and oh yeah yeah uh, to avoid being charged with sexism I'm not going to touch that but I'll let you say it uh, so there's the smooth and the flattering speech but then there's this aspect of the way they operate and this comes out several places in scripture Remember when Jesus tells us you, you, you know them by their fruit and he says one reason you need to measure them by their fruit he says is because they come as sheep in what? Wolves clothing. Or excuse me, wolves. Excuse me. <laughs> God, that wolves and sheep. Now, there's some false teaching for you. Yes, uh, Rick. Yeah, that's, that's often probably true, yeah. So Jesus warns us that they are wolves in sheep's clothing. So the question is, what does a false teacher look like? He looks like a sheep. He looks like a sheep. She looks like a sheep. Because they put on that garment. They put on that clothing. Okay. So, so this brings up the issue of the deceptiveness of their operation. The deceptiveness of how they carry on what they do. Okay. Uh, Jesus says they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul in Galatians, talking about the situation there in Antioch, says that, they, that there were men, he said, who sneaked in to spy out our liberty. These were false brethren. He calls them false brethren who came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And he says they snuck in 
to spy out our liberty. Jude uh, talks uh, in, Jude, in the book of Jude, he talks about in, uh, in the letter, he talks about those, he said, who crept in unnoticed. So there is there tends to be a characteristic sometimes with these people that they that they, they really try to fly under the radar. They come in there, you know, sometimes they may come in and they be very quiet at first. They may, you know, not give any indication of, you know, that they want to cause any trouble or anything. They just, and they just kind of watch and they look for people they think might be susceptible to what they have to say and what they want to do. And so they, they just kind of come in. They're very, you know, and they kind of, as Paul says, they're spying us out. And they're just kind of watching. And then eventually they pull one person aside and they start to, you know, you know this? You know? Maybe somebody who's shown a little weakness in an area or maybe shown a little bit of question about something and, and they detect that. Their radar are out to pick that up and they pick that up and they go after those people and they begin to whisper to them. So they can be very deceptive and sneaky about the way they go about things. So these are some of the things about their manner. So we've talked about now three areas. One is the content is the way we measure. That's the, the foolproof way we measure. Uh, uh, we've talked about uh, the uh, fruit of their lives and the fruit of their ministry or the fruit of their teaching or whatever. And then thirdly, the manner of it, the way they do it. So these are three ways we measure. The first, of course, uh, uh, the first and the third, uh, first and second, of course, are are infallible. They're irrevo- uh, They're uh, they're uh, effective uh, in every case of determining false teaching. The third area, by the way, they communicate. It's a little more subjective. Somebody, like I said, you know, I thought somebody was flattering when it turned out they weren't flattering, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, uh, so it's a little more subjective, but it's still something we need to be alert to. Okay. And Paul says we need to watch these things. Now the question is. Why does Paul address this to the Romans? Because he says now in verse 19, he says, uh, the report of your, he says, for, he ties this logically to what he's just said. For, he says, the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. So, so the church in Rome is doing well. When he says your obedience, he he may be referring to their obedience to the faith, that is, that they have believed the truth and held to the truth. Or he may be referring to their, uh, their just obedient to the, obedience to the teachings that they are actually, in fact, doing the things that Christ taught and Christ commanded. Uh, or uh, he may be doing both. I think he is referring to both. That the Roman church is a church that has been, excuse me, faithful to the teaching they've received, excuse me, and they are... Uh, faithful in carrying out and living out the Christian life. This is the characteristic of the Roman church. But because it is the Roman church, their reputation has spread throughout the whole world. Okay? So the whole Roman world, at least Christians throughout the Roman world, and I presume uh, uh, many pagans as well, are aware that there is this group of people in Rome who really believe this stuff and really live this stuff out and their reputation has spread. Paul's concern is that very reputation is at stake. Paul's concern is because they have this reputation that people all over know about them, 
What will it do to the name of Christ and what will it do to the work of Christ if this church is divided? If the people in this church are caused to stumble in their walk with Christ? So, it's not just a matter of our own lives that's at stake. It's a question of how do we impact others. You know, I would like to say that, you know, that I just toe the line and try to obey the Lord because I love the Lord and, and, uh, and I just want to be faithful to Him. But I have to confess that one of the things that keeps me trying to be faithful to God is you people. Because I think about you people. And I think, if I were to stumble, if I were to fall, how would it affect you people? How would it impact you people? Because we've all been impacted by situations like that. Haven't we? We've all seen people that we, that we love, that whose, whose fellowship with the Lord we were encouraged by, whose teaching ministered to us, and then they stumbled. They fell into immorality or they got into some kind of false teaching or whatever. We, we, we've all seen that. And we've also seen the impact of of others, of great Christian leaders. Maybe we didn't know them so much, but, but we knew of their leadership, etc. And maybe they'd written much and, and affected, but then, but then they stumbled and they fell. We had just, uh, just about a year ago, we had an individual who had been uh, very outspoken, very outspoken. In, uh, he'd been in public talks. He'd been here in Oklahoma, been here at the University of Oklahoma, spoken publicly on campus, uh, promoting Christianity and answering questions and and that sort of thing. He he uh, published a, or he produced a movie uh, back during the elections last year, uh, promoting uh, certain issues that I that I would concur with and I would agree with. And then a few months later, he fell into open immorality and lost his position as the president of a of a Christian college and and uh, and defamed the name of Christ. We all know that happens. This is what Paul's concerned about. The church in Rome is well known. What will happen if it is divided? What will happen if the people in that church fall into sin? So the issue is the same for us. Uh, we, we have the privilege of attending here a fairly large church in Norman, relatively speaking. We are a well-known church in Norman. We have a reputation to uphold. Not ours, but Christ's. And so we need to be on guard for these kind of things and these kind of influences. It would be true even if we were just a little church of 20 people. But, it's, but it is true of us because of the position we're in as it was true for the Roman church. So Paul says, I want you, he says, to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. We have this thing that we think if we're really going to be effective, you know, we've got to really know all about all the evil that's going on around us. Well, we don't. We just need to know the good. We know plenty of the evil. We don't need to delve into learning more of it. Okay. We all know enough of the evil. Uh, we can get along just fine. Okay. What we do need more of is wisdom in the things that are good. And so... So, if we will devote ourselves to 
becoming wise in what is good and remaining innocent in the things that are evil, then we can, this can help us to avoid these kind of pitfalls that Paul is warning us about. And then he promises, he says, God will crush Satan. The God of peace, he says. This is the idea of the peacemaker again. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Of course, this brings to our mind the passage in Genesis, uh, the first prophecy concerning the Messiah, where God uh, says uh, to, uh, to our enemy, he says that the seed of the woman will crush uh, your head uh, eventually. And so there is, of course, this reference to Satan being crushed. In that case, it's a specific reference to Jesus and to the work of Christ, we believe, on the cross, that he, in fact, did that when he was crucified and raised from the dead, that he crushed, he utterly defeated Satan. Now, it's just left, what all that's left is the mop-up operations, you could say, okay? But he has defeated Satan. But there is another sense, and a temporal sense, in which Satan, of course, is still very active. And in this, you and I play a role. And the encouraging word we have from the Lord and from Paul here in Romans is that if we are faithful to the faith handed uh, down to us, if we are uh, on guard, if we are watching, if we are, 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 are shunning and turning away from these kind of people, we have this promise that, that by the grace of God, Satan will be defeated. Satan's about doing all kinds of things. Satan wants to come here into our church and he wants to cause division. He wants to cause dissension. He wants to cause bitterness and animosity between people in the church. That's the work of Satan. But the peacemaker, God, is determined that we can crush Satan under our feet, that God will do it if we will be obedient to him be faithful to the truth that's been handed down to us and be on guard for it and not let people like that come into our midst. Okay? So, so we have this promise that if we are faithful in these things, God will, in fact, crush Satan under our feet in a temporal sense. And then, of course, he ends this section with the words, the, the prayer, the wish, the desire that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with us. And, you know, what more can you say than that? That's what it's all about, isn't it? If we, are, if we are to succeed in the things that he's been talking about here in these verses, it will only be because of the grace of God, because of Christ's grace and his love for us. Okay. Well, uh, the next time we're together, we will look briefly at these last few greetings that he gives, and then we'll go on into the doxology at the end of the chapter. Uh, next week, uh, Gary will be. Thank you very much.